0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Darcy. I want
0: to pick your brain on the Trump.
2: Hi, panel. my name's Jenna Johnson.
0: This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, March 22nd. Today, an escalating fight over Trump's taxes the struggle to end the country's deadliest drug crisis, and the meticulous note-taker being subpoenaed by Congress.
3: You know, the tax returns are something that we've been seeking for a couple years now and have tried to, through the proper procedures, you know, bring them to the fore. You know, the fact is that you hadn't seen a memo, but there was some sort of draft memo. Is that right? I I was just contacted by the Wall Street uh, excuse
4: me, the Washington Post two days ago, we heard it. I just first saw it this morning in the paper, and yes, it's some draft memo. Do you make your decisions based on what's on the front page of the Washington Post or confidential memos that you haven't seen? Is, is that how you do business as the Treasury? Very rarely. I don't think I've made a decision on that basis.
3: Who, who drafted it?
4: I, I have no idea. We'll, we're looking into that.
0: Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin was on Capitol Hill this morning, and he was asked to respond to this story, which was your story, about a draft IRS memo. What did you think when you saw him being asked about this on the Hill?
4: It's a little surreal. (laughs) The memo is marked draft. It was not a final memo.
0: Jeff Stein is a policy reporter for The Post, and he's been reporting on this confidential draft memo. It talks about whether the IRS has to hand over tax returns that are requested by Congress.
4: To see, you know, a sitting cabinet member adjudicate the questions that I've been grappling with has been pretty interesting. But uh, I don't know how it got to the Washington Post. It would have been more interesting if it had got to me or the commissioner to review.
0: So tell me about this memo that addresses tax returns requested by Congress.
4: So what we've learned is that sometime in the fall of 2018, after it was clear that Democrats were likely to win the House of Representatives back and likely to subpoena or ask for Trump's tax returns, someone in the IRS wrote this 10-page memo. It's very thorough and it details exactly the part of the tax code that pertains to congressional oversight of tax returns. The memo does not mention Trump. It does not mention the president. But it does give a detailed description of the issues that Congress and the Treasury Secretary are currently fighting over. The memo we got from the IRS really makes clear that Congress, and specifically the House Ways and Means Committee currently chaired by Richard Neal of Massachusetts, does have the authority to ask for these returns. It outlines one narrow exception for executive privilege. That exception is not what Mnuchin has cited in denying the request to Congress. And the memo talks at length about how Congress was very clear in writing this statute that this committee has really broad and sweeping authority to get these records. It talks about how other committees of Congress do not have such authority, but it's very clear that according to this memo, there's almost no wiggle room here for Congress to be denied these records.
0: And the one exception that is cited, which is executive privilege, why wouldn't that apply to President Trump in this case?
4: Executive privilege is a concept generally defined as uh, the president's ability to deny requests related to internal administration talks and deliberations. So, Obviously the president's tax returns are not related to administration deliberations about policy, and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin has not cited executive privilege as a reason for denying the request. Moreover, Neil is requesting records from 2013, 2014, and 2015. Before he was president. Before he was president. So there is no basis whatsoever for invoking executive privilege. And to that point, Mnuchin has not denied Democrats' requests for Trump's tax returns on the basis of executive privilege. But this memo says that that's the only reason that they can deny it. Mnuchin has argued that Congress needs a legitimate legislative purpose for requesting the records, that they need some sort of way to tie this back into legislation and oversight. And the memo is very clear that that is not a justification for denying the returns. The memo says explicitly that even if Congress did not have a justification at all, even if they just said we need them and didn't say why, the Treasury Secretary and the IRS would still be obliged to turn them over and not be able to deny them on those grounds.
0: Does that mean that this is the official IRS position?
4: So the IRS would say, no, we got a statement from the agency and it says pretty clearly that they think that this is a draft memo, does not reflect the agency's official position and was not sent to treasury. That said, I think the fact that this memo exists, the fact that several legal experts have told me that it's very well researched, very thorough, suggests that at least key staff at the IRS, if not the official agency position, if not the political appointees, think that the law is very clear and that Democrats are right when they say Trump has no alternative, and the Treasury has no alternative but to hand over Trump's tax returns.
0: Steve Mnuchin, as the head of the Treasury Department, is technically in charge of the IRS. Can he stop them from releasing tax returns to Congress if they feel that that the law compels them to release them?
4: Some legal experts I've talked to have said that the law is very clear that this is IRS's decision and not the Treasury Secretary's. Mnuchin has argued, look, the IRS falls within Treasury and therefore Mnuchin as the Treasury Secretary has the authority and the ability to intervene in important questions. I've talked to a number of experts who think that he's he might be right about that. Former IRS commissioner who was appointed by Obama thinks that this should be Mnuchin's decision and not the IRS's, particularly given the constitutional and political questions it raises. Mnuchin, has cleverly raised potential uh, slippery slope arguments about what could happen if you know Congress starts requesting many more kinds of records that could be justified or argued are politically motivated. A lot of legal experts have argued that Congress does have a legitimate legislative purpose in making sure that the president has above board financial returns. But you know, one legal expert raised a point to me, which I, I thought was interesting, and he said, "Look." Mnuchin may be wrong in saying that this is not a legitimate legislative purpose, but what if Congress at a future date asked for the tax returns of all Jews in America? What would Hmm. that look like? What would the ramifications for privacy or confidentiality be?
0: There's Um, some concern about setting the precedent that whatever Congress asks for in terms of tax returns have to be handed over even if there's no real rationale for them.
4: That's right. And I I think a lot of people think that that concern is overblown given that the person whose tax returns they're asking for is the most powerful person in the world and has given us ample evidence for thinking that there's something in here that needs to be scrutinized or at least looked at.
0: So this memo is kind of the latest revelation in the fight over the president's tax returns. What else has been happening in this fight lately?
4: On Monday, a federal judge ruled that House Democrats' request to subpoena part of Trump's financial records uh, was valid. And Trump grew very upset at this and said that he would immediately appeal the case. But it seems likely, at least from this judge's ruling, that we're going to see much more of Trump's financial records. One thing that is worth keeping in mind is that Democrats are planning to sue in federal court to compel the Trump administration to release these records. The significance potentially of this IRS memo is that Democrats are very likely to use it as ammunition to say, look, even your own attorney or someone in your own department thinks that the law is very clear on this. So it could have huge consequences for the, you know, the ongoing fight over these documents. Beyond the sort of political ramifications and the just sort of intense curiosity about what Trump is so defensive about, is that there's a there's a fundamental separations of powers question here. The law seems to have been written precisely for this kind of question where Congress believes that it has a need to understand exactly whether someone in in the administration and the executive branch has conflicts of interest. And whether that's within Congress's prerogative, whether Congress has the right to do that, will set a precedent, you know, for years. —
0: Jeff, thank you so much. —
4: Thanks so much for having me. —
0: Jeff Stein is a policy reporter for The Post.
2: I'm Sari Horwitz, and I cover the Justice Department.
5: My name is Scott Hyam, and I'm a reporter assigned to the investigative unit of The Washington Post.
3: Effective today, my administration is officially declaring the opioid crisis a national public health emergency under federal law.
2: When President Trump came into office, he inherited the deadliest drug crisis in American history—
3: Last year, we lost
2: at least 64,000 Americans to overdoses. That's
3: 107.
2: Tens of thousands of people were dying a year. And most of those deaths now were coming from this synthetic opioid called fentanyl, 50 times more powerful than heroin, 100 times more powerful than morphine. And he had promised to tackle the opioid crisis when he became president. And this was his first big action.
3: This crisis of drug use, addiction, and overdose deaths,
0: it's just been so long in the making. And this was a crisis that had grown dramatically during the Obama presidency, right?
5: I think they were a little bit overwhelmed by the size and enormity, the scale of this epidemic. They realized that the previous administration had left them with a disaster that was caused by Corrupt doctors, pharmaceutical companies, uh, drug distributors.
3: I am directing all executive agencies to use every appropriate emergency authority to fight the opioid crisis.
5: He was promising the public that he was going to do something that the Obama administration had not, and he was going to confront this epidemic head-on.
2: What what is he promising?
3: As part of this emergency
2: response... He promised to provide better drug treatment.
3: And those approvals will come very, very fast. Not like
2: in the past. Very, very quickly. And to also create a public awareness campaign. So we get to people before they start. He promised better screening by U.S. Customs and Border Protection officers and by the U.S. Postal Service. To hold back the flood of cheap and deadly fentanyl.
5: And he promised to step up prosecutions of fentanyl traffickers and other people who were trafficking in opioids.
3: Here in America, we are once again enforcing the law, breaking up gangs and distribution networks, and arresting criminals who peddle dangerous drugs to our youth. Watch what happens if we do our jobs, how the number of drug users and the addicted will start to tumble downward over a period of years.
0: It will be a beautiful thing to see. That speech was in October of 2017. Now, for the past few months, Sari and Scott have been trying to measure the success of those promises.
5: We wanted to take a look at the public statements and see how they were playing out on the ground.
0: They got access to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It was granular data that gave them an unprecedented look inside the realities of this crisis. And they used that data to identify the communities around the country that had been hit worst by fentanyl. They called up law enforcement officials and drug treatment officials in those communities. And they talked to
2: one woman in Fayette County, Ohio, the deputy health commissioner. And she was talking about the problem there and said, boy, you should see our jail. This Hmm. really decrepit jail that was built in 1884. And there's too many people there. And they've been brought in and they're on drugs and they're just sitting there and withdrawing because we don't have drug treatment. So, you went to that jail? We went to that jail. Uh,
5: What percentage of your population uh, comes in with the substance abuse
3: problem? In the last six, seven years, probably, I would venture to say 75% come in with some type of substance uh, problem. Let's go take a look. All right, (laughs) i But this is, you're actually now entering into the the 1884
2: building. What, What was that like?
3: You guys, decent?
2: It was really stunning
3: Put your jail on.
2: because we've been to prisons and jails. Both of us have been to many, and we'd never seen anything like this.
3: Coming in. This
2: hmm?
5: Not a lot of room in here. Really.
1: No. Not a lot room. It had been built for
2: twenty-four people, and there were fifty men and women in there. And some days it gets as high as ninety. Mm. And it was just dungeon-like and decrepit.
5: There are metal bunks and there are mattresses on the floor and there's only one shower for, for 24 people. And it was really, truly disgusting.
0: So did you talk to some of the people inside of the jail?
1: So what do you guys do all the time? Sit here, sleep and watch
0: TV?
5: We did. I mean, when, when they found out that we were reporters for The Washington Post, they, they kind of gathered around us and really wanted us to know what was happening inside this jail. They were mostly very young women, maybe in their 20s or 30s, and they were just basically withdrawing, and, and many of them from fentanyl. For fentanyl? Most of
2: us in here are probably users of that.
1: fentanyl?
0: So people who are addicted to fentanyl and are having a crisis, they're ending up in this jail? You know, most of them
5: are in this jail for low-level drug crimes, mostly for possession they're not in there for trafficking. They're not in for major crimes. But there's no other place for law enforcement to keep these people. So they just sit in this jail. They withdraw there. So how, how do you come off of it when you come in here? You just lay it out. Really? Yeah, lay it out and just suck it up. Uh, I mean, no help. only, nope, nothing. It's cold, too. Yeah. They're shaking. They're rocking back and forth. It was really a very upsetting scene.
0: All these people are in this jail, and then, like, what happens to them? I mean, they're they're withdrawing from fentanyl, but then do they end up in some kind of treatment program, or what happens? So
5: how do you get, like, treatment in this place? You
2: don't. They don't do Some do, but most don't. I mean, they go back out, and there aren't really a lot of resources for them. We're going to go right back out and do the same thing over again, because that's what we're used to and they go back to the streets and start taking drugs again
5: yeah and and that's not unique to fayette county this is happening all over the country we went to butler county also in ohio and that's a much more modern jail and the sheriff there told us the same thing that that jail is filled mostly with people who are addicted to drugs who get arrested and they really don't have the facilities or the services or the money to take care of these people who were withdrawing from now mostly fentanyl it used to be heroin now it's almost all fentanyl in Ohio.
0: So seeing all of this what was your takeaway of the state of how things have been going in the country over the past
2: couple of years? I think seeing the jail combined with the interviews that we did in the Ohio counties it was like a metaphor for the whole problem because while There are a lot of announcements from Washington about federal money going out to the states. What we saw is it's not getting to the ground fast enough and it's not enough money.
5: And the other problem is that there is no infrastructure of treatment facilities in rural America. So you can send a lot of money into a place like Fayette County, but there's not a lot of places set up to take in people for drug recovery. And then the money that's coming in, it expires within two years.
0: So then why is there this gap, like if President Trump made all these big promises in 2017 of all the ambitious things he was going to do to tackle
2: the fentanyl crisis, why is the situation still so bleak? Well, Scott and I interviewed Kellyanne Conway, who's the White House point person on the opioid issue. And what she said to us is, we didn't get into this crisis overnight and we're not going to get out of it overnight. They have taken a number of steps to confront the crisis. They've stepped up the prosecution of traffickers. They now require electronic monitoring of packages for the Postal Service. They're trying to negotiate with China to stem the flow of fentanyl into this country. So one of the ways that President Trump is looking at this is
0: as a law enforcement issue, right? Like cr- cracking down on drug cartels, cracking down on the people who are bringing this into the country and spreading it. How, how is that different from how the Obama administration had viewed this?
2: The Obama administration was trying to reverse the historic injustice of mass incarceration.
1: I appreciate the opportunity to speak in support of the amendments that are under consideration today. The department.
2: We saw that with the Holder memo that former Attorney General Eric Holder produced in 2013 to say to his prosecutors, we're not going to pursue low level, non violent drug offenders anymore.
1: Would nonetheless, I believe, send a, a strong message about the fairness of our criminal justice system.
2: And when Jeff Sessions came in, he had a different approach.
1: Today I am announcing
3: that I sent a memo through each of our United States attorneys... He
2: reversed the Holder memo.
3: I have empowered our prosecutors to charge and pursue the most serious offense as I believe the law requires.
2: And he told his prosecutors to make drug prosecutions the highest priority. Go after more drug offenders and prosecute every sort of fentanyl case.
3: It means that we're going to meet our responsibility to enforce the law with judgment and fairness.
0: So... The attorney general is focused on prosecuting and focused on the law enforcement aspect of things. But then there's this whole other office in the White House that's supposed to be in charge of drug policy and dealing with stuff like the opioid crisis.
5: Right. It's called the uh, the Office of National Drug Control Policy, which most people refer to as the Drug Czar's Office. And it is charged with coordinating all the federal agencies that touch the drug issue with coming up with a strategy and making sure that the country is on top of whatever drug threat there is at at that
2: moment. So over the past few years, what has this office been doing? For the first year, the drug czar's office was caught up in the chaos of the first year of the Trump presidency. They didn't have a leader. The president didn't nominate someone to lead that office until the fall of 2017, President Trump nominated Tom Marino, representative from Pennsylvania, an early supporter, an ardent supporter of his.
5: They nominated Tom Marino, but I guess they didn't do much vetting of Tom Marino.
1: A joint investigation by 60 Minutes and The Washington Post revealed explosive findings on how Congress may have helped disarm the Drug Enforcement Administration amid the opioid crisis.
5: Tom Marino is a very close ally of the pharmaceutical industry. And he had sponsored a piece of legislation that basically helped the pharmaceutical industry and drug distribution companies and manufacturers from being held liable for drugs that were being poured downstream into communities. Trump nominated him, and the Washington Post in 60 Minutes published a joint investigation into the legislation and Tom Marino's role in that legislation. And uh, Mr. Marino withdrew his nomination.
0: So after they had to withdraw that nomination, who gets appointed
2: to be drug czar after that? So they don't have a drug czar for a little while, but Kellyanne Conway is put in charge of the issue. President Trump and the administration are working tirelessly toward this. And I would just say that having traveled this country and studied this issue very closely, no state has been spared and no demographic group has gone untouched. This is not a problem. And Conway had not worked in drug policy. She didn't have drug policy experience. But she was very drawn to this issue and and is very passionate about this issue. Then what happened is the next year they nominated someone named James Carroll, and he was acting for pretty much a year until this January, January 2019, he was finally confirmed. So it took about two years to get a permanent drug czar in the White House. Now, White House officials will say we didn't need that We didn't need a drug czar because we were focusing on this issue, and Trump was doing all these things, and we had a a campaign, a prevention campaign, and Congress appropriated money, and we were pushing ahead anyway without a drug czar. But you have to wonder, you know, if if you're going to
0: this jail in Ohio and talking to people who say we're not getting enough money, we're not getting money to the right places, we're not getting money in the right ways, that there is this gap between what people are talking about in Washington and what's happening on the ground. You have to wonder whether some of that has to do with all of this disarray in this office that's supposed to be helping get that money to the places where it needs to go.
2: Well, certainly Democratic lawmakers feel that way. Elijah Cummings, representative from Baltimore, who's head of the House Oversight and Reform Committee, had a hearing. And he called the drug czar before him and said, look, why don't you have a drug strategy? There's a congressionally mandated requirement to have a drug strategy. And Carroll turned one into them, but it was determined that that drug strategy didn't meet the requirements of the law.
0: So you say that the White House says that they're doing their best to tackle this problem, but that it's, it's just a huge issue and then it's going to take time. But it also seems like the things that they have put in place so far haven't made a convincing case that they're making a turnaround, that that they really have a handle on this crisis. For the people that you've talked to in some of these communities that have been really hard hit, are they seeing any signs that the fentanyl crisis is letting up?
5: No. The prescription drug crisis is starting to let up, overdoses are starting to come down a little bit, but fentanyl overdoses are continuing to rise.
0: Then
2: what do people in these communities need? They need more drug treatment. They need more support, more resources to help get them off the street. So these are things that the federal government could be doing, right? Could be spending more on treatment
0: centers, could be spending more on education and prevention campaigns, but they're also doing things that could actually adversely affect the people who are currently addicted to fentanyl.
2: Well, the Trump administration wants to repeal the Affordable Care Act, the ACA, and they also want to cut Medicaid by $1.5 over 10 years. Both of those things, experts tell us and people on the ground tell us, would be devastating for these communities because so many people on drug treatment are getting this because of Medicaid and the expansion of Medicaid in states like Ohio.
1: But if this
2: is an important political issue
0: for President Trump, the fact that a lot of his – a lot of the areas that have supported him in his his last election are areas that have been hit really hard by the fentanyl crisis, why would he try to – dismantle health care in a way
2: that would hurt them. We interviewed a top official at Health and Human Services who's in charge of opioid issues. And he said to us, if the ACA is dismantled, it's going to have to be replaced.
5: Whether that will happen or not is an open question because there's no appetite on Capitol Hill right now to replace Obamacare. There are no plans. Mitch McConnell, the Senate leader, has already said that he's not taking it up. And so uh, this train is moving down the track to declare Obamacare unconstitutional. 20 states have sued to get rid of it. Uh, the Trump administration has uh, has sided with that lawsuit. And so a ruling could come down declaring the entire law unconstitutional, and it would remove health care coverage and Uh, drug treatment coverage for hundreds of thousands of people without anything in place.
0: So we're looking at a potential future where the fentanyl crisis not only doesn't get better, but actually starts getting much worse.
5: Yeah, it, it really could.
2: We spoke to a healthcare official in Clark County, another county in Ohio. Her name was Greta Mayer. And she said, I can't even imagine a world like that. All of what we gained would be lost.
0: Sari Horowitz and Scott Hyam are reporters for The Post. And now, one more thing. The House Judiciary Committee has been conducting a probe into the president's possible obstruction of justice during the Mueller investigation. As part of that probe, they've issued subpoenas for a number of former White House staffers. And one of those subpoenas, filed on Tuesday, is for Annie Donaldson, the former White House counsel's chief of staff. Her notes provided special counsel Robert Mueller with a real-time account of Trump's actions.
1: She mentioned, I think, 68 times in the report, and her notes as well come up frequently because she was essentially the scribe of some of the most dramatic intense, angst filled moments in the White House. I'm Carol Lenig. I'm a investigative reporter on the national desk at the Washington Post. So Annie Donaldson is a thirty five year old Harvard law grad, quite accomplished lawyer who came into the White House as chief of staff to Don McGahn, the White House counsel. She was in charge of basically managing the office and the lawyers and directing them for McGahn. And she
0: took notes, lots and lots of notes.
1: Really, her words scribbled furiously on a legal pad, either while she was in a meeting in real time or when her boss, Don McGahn, sprinted over to her and downloaded what he had just discussed with the president. Those word choices are going to be the the best thing we have, at least right now, to the Nixon tapes. You know, she's recounting in real time the conversations in the Oval, and some of them are not very flattering to the president. Some of them describe him raging at the Russia investigation while he says he's going to fire FBI Director Comey. Some of them say things like, Is this the beginning of the end? Some of her notes document how the president's actions made him look like a criminal and that his lawyers in the White House were very worried about that. She declined to participate in the story that I wrote about her. Several of her friends and colleagues, though, did agree to talk to me. And they describe a woman who is dutiful, loyal, organized, tireless, tries to keep a low profile. Now she's at center stage. She's a person who's witness to history, and lawmakers want to hear from her.
0: Carol Lennig is an investigative reporter at The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's episode by going to PostReports.com and join in on the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.